This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. Hello, and welcome to The Speech Link, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Shara Beauchart, speech-language pathologist, and I invite you to join us as we share practical strategies to take your therapy to the next level. We'll talk with experienced experts who have achieved extraordinary results and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. If you and your therapy kids are looking for a shot in the arm and something a little different to do in therapy, not that games aren't fun and helpful, but have you ever thought about doing something theatrical? (laughs) There's doing a play that requires a lot of memorization and blocking and sets and props and so on. There's also Reader's Theater, which I really like. Reader's Theater involves reading and emphasizes verbal expression and facial expressions, turn-taking, etc. And there's also improv or improvisation. You've seen improv on TV. Much of Saturday Night Live is improv, but (laughs) we're not taking it that far. We are, however, using the application of improv to generate a unique and fun way or style of interacting with our therapy kids and even therapy adults. My guest today has successfully applied improv techniques with her articulation, language, and fluency cases. It's totally fun, but most of all, beneficial. speech-language pathologist, and she earned her BFA, her Bachelor of Fine Arts in Acting at the University of Colorado, and has acted in a variety of repertory companies throughout the years. In fact, for the past 25 years, she's performed with Comedy Sports, a national improvisational comedy troupe which she and her husband founded. In 1995, she received her master's degree in speech-language pathology from Portland State University in Oregon. She did her CFY in the schools, and since then, she's been employed by the Providence Health System, working in acute care, rehab, outpatient, both pediatric and adult, and in home health settings. She's a former president of the Oregon Academy of Speech Pathology and Audiology. She's taught several workshops and courses on how to use improvisation techniques in speech-language therapy for children and adults, including for the Oregon Speech-Language Hearing Association. She's also shared the application of her techniques with educators, as well as physical therapists and occupational therapists. In addition, she teaches improv and directs plays for middle and high school children as well. (laughs) Welcome to the Speech Link, Ruth. It's great to be here, Shara. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. I'm glad you're here. You're a busy lady, but sounds like you're having fun. 
Yes. Yes. I have a lot of irons in the fire right now. And that's kind of what keeps me going. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, you're going to share some of those irons with us today. Here's where I'd like to start. Kind of on a broad scale, and just so that I know where you're coming from, what is theatrical improv? So unlike scripted theater, improv implies that you have no script. And in our particular context at Comedy Sports, which just to let you know, my husband and I did found the one in Portland, although there was one that existed prior to that. There were others throughout the country. We did found the one in Portland. But um, it so improv is when you get suggestions from your audience and you take those suggestions and you make a scene out of it or a game and you are presenting it for that audience, but it's improv. It's right in the moment based on those suggestions. And, you know, it's done by many performance groups throughout the world. Improv has become a huge thing in Portland alone. When we first arrived here, there was really us and one other group. And now I believe there are eight companies that actually have their own buildings, you know, their brick and mortar improv companies, as well as several other groups who just do things here and there. So it's become a, a very big deal throughout the world. And, uh, you know, in, in performance, improv is tends to be fairly fast paced. Um, and there is no wrong. It's, you know, you may be following a set of ideas, but there's no wrong. And so that's one of the things I really love about it. I do a lot of scripted theater, too, and I really enjoy it. But improv is its own beast. And I've gotten a lot of mileage out of it. Mm -hmm. So it's very spontaneous. It's collaborative. I mean, you have to have other people around to do it with, right? Yes. Yep, that's true. Okay. It's obviously centered in verbal, but I bet there's a lot of gestures and all of the other forms of communication, not just verbal. Right. For every form of communication, there is a, a piece in the improv world. Certainly a lot of movement and facial things come into it when you're creating characters and movement. There are, there are some groups that do basically mimed improv. And so that's another whole genre. There's musical improv. There's improv based off of different authors, you know, so there's Shakespearean improv and Brechtian improv. I mean, there's really a huge variety out there. You know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, sounds like you may have to have a lot of information at your fingertips so that you can talk about it and express that in your collaboration, in that improvisation that you're doing. Like if you are doing a, a book, so you have to have read that book and then express that in your improvisation. Right. Yes. If you're going to do things that are specific, I mean, in the entire world of improv, you know, you may be using a lot of things that are very current in some forms of improv. So you may be using a lot of information that, you know, young people are up with. Or you may be using, as you say, if you're using something that comes from a known author, for example, we created a group called Shakespeareov, And Shakespeareov, we sat down and watched and read a ton of plays. Many of us had already done that, but some of the people had not as much. And, and we watched together and we talked about them. And then we came up with a format for how improv could be done in a Shakespearean style. And we pr literally practiced the language of Shakespeare so that when we got up there, we knew what the correct tenses were and we knew what the 
subplots and plots and, you know, types of characters were that Shakespeare would have used. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot of research that goes into something like that. Totally interesting. I love that. And thinking about that from a therapist perspective, I'm kind of seeing the, you know, how we divide things into receptive language and expressive language. Yes. <laughs> you know, as you were talking about your your Shakespeare experience, I'm thinking, okay, she poured all that information in so that you received it and you had to remember it and then you had to apply it in specific ways expressively. Mm-hmm. And that's probably kind of what we do with our kids. And and I'm just excited. I really don't know. I'm excited to hear your information and, and how did you get started using and applying improv techniques into your speech and language therapy? So when I was finishing with grad school, you know, we would have clinics and I found that there weren't always materials available, readily available. And, you know, when you're a student and you're having to pull all these things together on the quick and also do your studies and be working on your thesis and and everything else that goes along with that. I had a book by Dr. Rhea Paul that had some activities in it for language with children. And as I was reading that and doing some of those, which I quite enjoyed, I thought to myself, you know, I have this other realm that I use all the time in performance And I really think it's applicable because it's so linguistic. I mean, it's all about language and communication. And it makes sense to me that I ought to be able to use some of those activities with these children. And so I sat down and I made myself a list of all of the improv games I could think of and ticked off each one that I could see had a specific application. And actually, the brilliant thing about it is a lot of them you could take one game or activity and address multiple goals in it. And that was one of the things I really liked about it. So I took that back to clinic and I started working with uh, several individual children. And then we also had a couple of groups that came into us there at the clinic. And I started using, I taught the other student speech pathologists some of these games and we started using them with the children. And by the end, they put on a little performance for their parents based on what we had done with them. So that's that's where I first got started. And then uh, shall I go on? Sure. Yeah, I'm enjoying this. Great. So I um, my first job. Well, so, so, so then I did student teaching at a high school and I. I had an amazing experience there. I had three different groups of kids and the highest functioning level of those kids were kids who had language disorders, but were, you know, it was almost like a remedial English class for them is what it was. And uh, they looked fairly bored to me by a lot of what they were doing. And so when I came to offer them some suggestions of what we could do, one of the things I actually offered was I, I gave them like six suggestions of things we could do for the last couple of units of the year. And one of those, and I just threw it in there thinking, oh, what the heck, I'll just put it in there, was a play, which is much ado about nothing, uh, Shakespeare, right? So I knew from talking to these kids that none of them had much experience with Shakespeare, but I thought, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'll throw it out there. And there's a movie that goes along with it at that time. Uh, Kenneth Branagh, the version that he did was available. And I thought, you know, that'll be a, a little extra thing for them at the end. We could watch the movie. So I gave them all these options. And do you know that almost all of them 
that was their first choice. And I was very surprised because what I'd been told about these this group of kids was don't give them any homework. They won't do it. And you'll just frustrate yourself and you'll get into it with them and don't don't give them anything to take home. So I, I kind of took that to heart. But at the same time, uh, I thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll just play it by ear. So I made copies of the play and I first went through and made it much shorter than it is in its original form. And we sat down and we read the play bit by bit each day that we got together. And each day we had a discussion on it. And by the end, <laughs> so I had one kid in there who really stood out. He had language problems, but his primary issue, his primary um, IEP issue was that he was SED, severely emotionally disordered or disabled. And so this kiddo, he read this with us and he missed a couple of classes and but he really wanted to get the whole experience. And he said, can I, can you just give me the whole play so I can take it home and read the whole thing so I can catch up so I can understand. And I said, are you talking about homework? <laughs> he said, yeah. <laughs> so he took it home. He took oh it home. He brought it back to me as he promised he would. And when he brought that back to me, Shar, he brought me, and I am not kidding you, a 10 page paper about that play. No. And I was blown out. I absolutely couldn't believe it. And another kid who was very hearing impaired with language issues around his hearing impairment did virtually the same thing. He missed a number of classes and he said, I'd like to take the play and the movie home so I can catch up with what I missed. And he wrote a paper and, and I, and I think it was because he knew the other kid did it. And he said, wow, if he can do it, I can do it. And I was so impressed. And then we did some improv in the class based on what we'd learned. And uh, I was shocked at how good they were at it. And none of them had any improv or theater experience. And they just jumped in and did it. Oh my gosh. And, you know, what I always say to people is when I'm teaching this to clinicians, you don't need any theatrical or improvisational background to do this. I always want to make sure that people understand that right. because it's, I think, many people who don't have any kind of performance background are a little bit fearful of jumping into that. And, you know, a lot of speech pathologists do have uh, mm -hmm. performance backgrounds, but those who don't can be a little fearful about that, but you really do not need it. There is no performance goal. There's no acting skills who, that are required. And these kids who've done this with me, the majority of them do not have any background in that. And yet they jump in and they learn what they're meant to be learning from it. And at the same time, they are just really engaged and enjoying themselves. Yes. They're motivated. They want to do it. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> that was a longish answer to how I got involved with that. You know, it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's too bad because I've had a few of those through the years and I wish that I could see them now and where they're at now in their life. And, you know, like who knows, maybe one of those kids actually went into theater or, you know, some sort of drama or acting. You never know. You might have just sparked that interest and um, who knows. Well, I did have a boy who, when I worked with him at the PSU Portland State Clinic was four or five years old. And he was both articulation and language therapy. And do you know that when he was 
in his 20s here recently, he came to a show that I was in and he came up to me and he said, you won't remember me, but you worked with me when I was four years old. And when he described who he was, and I did remember him because I only had a few kids in that clinic. And I was shocked to see him zero, you know, articulation problems, zero language <laughs> problems. And, uh, you know, he wasn't, it wasn't like he was doing theater for a living, but he comes to a lot of theater and enjoys it and is in the business world and is a very well-spoken individual. So I was very happy to see him. Oh, don't you just love it? I mean, that just spurs you on. That's absolutely wonderful. Well, I am so anxious to get into this. And I know that you have some information that you would like to share with us focused on, you know, articulation or language or fluency piece. And I'm just going to open it up. Where would you like to go from here? Would you like to share with us the populations that you have used improv? Sure. So uh, in, in the realm of working with children, I have worked with kids with um, disfluency, articulation, language, both receptive and expressive. Uh, and, and as an offshoot of that, it sometimes morphed into reading and writing, because as you know, when we're working with children, it, that's how it is. I mean, in, this, in the school-based population, you are definitely having to address some of their IEP goals that include their scholastic goals. So yeah, with children, it has been a pretty broad spectrum. Oh, and, you know, I've worked a lot more recently. And so not as much with children, because it, honestly, it wasn't quite as big of a deal when I was working with children. Well, I mean, it existed, but it wasn't as strong a focus as it is now but working with social language disorder. And some of these activities that I will talk about when I was using them, I was addressing that because certainly I recognized it as a problem for some of them, um, but it wasn't a, a clear focus. But in the last few years, it has become a more clear focus for me. And I'll tell you that that's because more recently I've been working solely with adults. And I just want to put out this one case because I think it's so relevant to working with children. What this woman went through as a child, she clearly had social language disorder. And I don't know, and I don't believe they still fully know, They they her diagnosis was listed as being organic brain syndrome, which I think is just sort of a, has become, so, or, or was at the time sort of a catch-all term for things that included, you know, autism spectrum and ADD and ADHD kinds of kids. And that's when she describes herself as a child, it was kind of a mixture of those. So she was routinely picked on at school. I, and when I say picked on, I mean beaten up uh, physically and emotionally and not only by her peers, but by teachers. So she was just given a terrible time all throughout her growing up. And when she described the things that were happening to her and why she thought they happened, having gained some self-knowledge of that, it was evident that it was happening because of the way she communicated with people. So so, so time passes, she grows up, she lives with her parents till she's 40. She works for them and, and in a few other sort of sheltered settings. And she has a number of problems, including strong visual problems and some physical issues and so forth. So she goes through her life and then her parents pass away and she moves into attempting to live independently, which she does for a while, but then she has increasing health problems and her siblings wanted her to move into assisted living. So she did that. And when she did that, she found that she suddenly had to eat breakfast, lunch and dinner with 
groups of people, which she hadn't done before or not since she was a child. And so her problem was that she was being refused at people's tables and refused sort of generically throughout the day uh, by potential communication partners because, for one thing, she had a very loud and sometimes very high-pitched voice, especially if she got upset. Um, And then she also, she had the issues that a lot of children on the autism spectrum have, which is not being able to take other people's perspective in communication, not being able to emotionally express herself in the way that she was really intending, and then talking way beyond (laughs) the topic. You know, her conversational turns were 40 times longer than everybody else's, um, and also um, topics that were inappropriate for general conversation. So she came to speech pathology saying, what can I do about this? And uh, my the woman who was there previous to me started with her and basically started addressing, first of all, the volume and pitch piece and taught her how to become self-aware. And, and she was getting that pretty well under control when I came in and, and took that job when that uh, wonderful speech pathologist retired. And I recognized that there were this plethora of other issues. And that's what we sat down and started working on. And we did some of that in a group context. She is in a communication group of mine. And we would play some of these games where part of it was directing at getting her to ask others questions about themselves instead of just talking all the time about herself um, and coming up with group topics that were appropriate that everybody would want to listen to. And now, having worked through a bunch of that, she has actually made a couple of friends. She, when she goes into uh, group settings where they have activities, she has come up with for herself, with a little bit of coaching from me, some signals. Uh, you know, things like your megaphone's too loud. Uh, that's what she uses. Or, um, Uh, You're being absent-minded professor when she starts to ramble because she can take those kind of cues from people, not have her feelings hurt by it, find that it's amusing and at the same time know what she has to do to adjust what she's saying. And to me, I mean, that's totally applicable to kids who are in that same realm. Oh, Ruth, I love that story. Now, with that said, do you think that your improvisation background helped you to come up with ideas and solutions for that lady? Absolutely. Both from the fact that when she would just ask me questions, a lot of times she brings something to me very much in the moment of an experience that she's having where she's upset about an interaction she's had with someone. And I definitely think that my improv experience Mm -hmm. helps me to be able to immediately help her to something. Uh, And, and also I feel like it has, is helping her in the sense that she's now being able to respond to things that people say in a way that's appropriate and to be able to do it more quickly than she used to, where she used to have to go back or come back to me and say, oh my, this is what happened and I don't know what to do about it or or this is what happened and it took me two days to work out what to go and say to this person. But now, fairly frequently, she's coming and saying, somebody said this to me and this is how I replied to them. And it seemed to work. And sometimes it didn't work, but you know, she's letting me know that she's taken something away from that experience. So, yeah. I love it. I love the application piece 
And I kind of get a sense that, yes, you can weave in some receptive and maybe say, you know, during the improv, make sure that you use, you know, these vocabulary words, or maybe you've been working on grammar and make sure that you formulate it this way. I imagine that it has kind of a universal appeal. Have you ever used this? And I think that you said that you had with articulation kids or um, language disordered kids. Do you have maybe one or two examples of those and get real specific with me so that I kind of get a sense as to what you do in therapy? Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Oh, good. Shar, you and I talked about the idea of being evidence based and there is some research being done and that has been done about use of theater and even improv with some specific groups of people. Mm. And if we have time at the end, uh, I would be happy to do that. And also I have those references that people can get a hold of me and I can supply them with. Perfect. But also part of being evidence-based is your own evidence in terms of you as a therapist watching what you do and recording what you do and knowing what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I literally went back to my old notes of many children that I worked with in the past before I came on with you with this podcast and looked up some very specific cases in which I had done art, uh, improv games mm -hmm. and activities with some of the students. And what I'm going to do is just break it down into the different types of students I worked with, uh, give you a couple of examples of some activities that I did with them, and then sort of what their overall outcomes were. How does that sound? Sounds great. Thank you. Go for it. So I did work with a number of children who were disfluent. And I'll give you a, a very specific example. I had a brother and a sister who I worked with at one school. They were, the boy was a third grader and the girl was a fifth grader. And his disfluency was pretty strong. His was more pronounced than hers. And in the beginning, when I first started with her, I thought, boy, is she really disfluent? And then I would go out on the playground or into her classroom to listen to her and notice that when she became stressed by a situation, that's when it came out. And I know that's true with a lot of disfluent folks. So I worked with them over the course of the, that school year, and I started with some, some specific games. Now, I had an approach, you know, in terms of teaching them easy onset and, and all the kinds of things that people do with disfluent students. And just so that you understand, I want to make everyone clear with this. When I do these activities, it's not like they're the only things I do, right? They are some of the tools in a large handbag of tools that we all have. So, and I really view them as being the practice step, sort of in between drill work and generalization. <laughs> and so that's what these games sort of reflect. So for example, with these two kiddos, I played a game called Categories, which is a very simple game, but it puts some onus, some, some communicative onus and stress on the people doing it. So categories is just a game where you stand in a group and you give them a category and they have to name as many items in that category as they can. Uh, it's also a, a good language game, but for this case, it was for fluency. And they had to come up with as many of those as they could as quickly as they could using their fluency strategies 
And when they fell out of the fluency strategies, then we stopped and started over again and everything was fine. And they knew that. And I told them from, from the beginning, there's no wrong, you know, there's, there's no, there's no saying no to this. We're just going to do it. And whatever comes out, comes out. And so that was the first thing they did. And they did actually pretty well at that. They had a, the boy had a little bit of trouble initially. It was a little bit, uh, it was a little stressful for him, but he got past that. And, and we moved along after several days of playing that as one of our things. Then we moved up a level. And the next thing we did was a game called, what are you doing? which has a lot of cognitive stress behind it. Uh, it's a game that I also happen to use with head injured people sometimes. But this particular game, one person mimes an activity and the other person says, what are you doing? And they have to say anything except what they're actually doing. And then that person who asked them, they begin miming that activity. So for example, if you were miming the activity of turning pancakes and somebody said, what are you doing? You might say brushing the dog. And then that person who asked you the question begins to mime brushing a dog and you say to them, what are you doing? And maybe they say um, taking a walk or whatever. And then <laughs> it goes back and forth that way. So there's a heavy cognitive and thinking load on it. So that you're not just a communicative, lo a communicative load, but a cognitive load. And we know a lot of times that's when people break down. So doing that kind of a fairly hardcore activity in a completely safe space that is this activity that is fun and challenging and engaging, but is not the standing up in front of a class and giving a report right? It's, it's somewhere in between that it's challenging, but it's, it's in a fun, safe space. Mm -hmm. So, so that was the next thing we did. And then followed, you know, a couple of days or, you know, sessions later, a game called, which is now called Wikipedia. I think we called it something different then, but times have changed and we now call it Wikipedia, which is the thing of, um, standing up as if you were the Wikipedia and you were given a topic and you have to talk on it. And one of the other people in the group challenges you about something that you say, and then you have to defend it. And if you defend it such that they buy into that, then you get to continue. And if you don't, you step back and the other person steps up and they begin to talk. So, you know, we played, I played this game with some people last week and the subject was dinosaurs. And the first person stood up and said, one of the oldest dinosaurs, and they're just making this all up, right, uh, was the pterodactyl. And the pterodactyl had this feature and that feature. And this other person stepped up and said, that pterodactyl didn't have that feature. They had this. And then they go on about it, right? So we, we started doing Wikipedia in that very fun way where I just gave them random topics. And then I got a list from their teacher of things that they were studying in class. And we began to do Wikipedia as if it were real things that they had to talk about in class. Yeah. And so I said to the teacher, what is the next thing that these kids have to write about? They had, of course, two different teachers. They were in two different grades. And um, she gave me some suggestions about things that they had to write a report and give a presentation to the class. And so we we played Wikipedia about the topic and then we morphed it and sat down and wrote what they said and played it some more and wrote some more over the course of several sessions. And then they played Wikipedia on those topics so that when they got into the classroom and stood up to give that report, there was no way the kids in the classroom were going to challenge them nearly at the level that I was challenging them or the level that they were challenging each other because they were siblings, as it happened. Um, and so they got to the point where they could do that and not feel like it was going to be some huge stressor that was going to cause them to stutter. 
And more importantly, if they did stutter, that they could use their strategies and get past it and no one was going to die. It was going to be what it was going to be. And uh, it worked very well for those two. And, and one of the things that they did that I think made them feel the best and that their teacher absolutely collaborated on with me, I said, here are some games these kids have learned. Would you let them at some point when you have a little time in the classroom play one of these games and teach the other kids so that they feel like they have something that nobody else knows that they can show how to do. And she, uh, both teachers were willing to do that. And then one day, one of my favorite things to do was to go out on recess and pretend like I was being one of the recess monitors and just watch my kids and see what they were doing. And by golly, I had a couple of experiences, both with these kids and some of the Arctic kids where they got bored at recess and maybe it was raining that day and they had to be in the gym or, or whatever. And they started teaching groups of kids these games. And it was great. That was my uh, fluency example. That's a great example. I love that. See, that makes all kinds of sense. And you married it and applied it to the uh, academic world and to their classroom. I love it. Right. That was a that was a big focus at that school. And I, I did my best to, to live up to that. So then my next uh, group that I wanted to talk about were a group of kids who I saw specifically for articulation. A couple of them had both language and articulation issues, and I saw them a little more frequently. And I some of them were in two different groups. But um, so I had this group of four boys and they were fourth and fifth graders. And they were a couple of kids in that group were kind of a handful <laughs> and behaviorally. Mm -hmm. And um, that was one of the places where I thought, boy, this is going to be a really good place to use improv or at least try it with them because I need to really work at engaging them. These are not kids who are going to sit around and, you know, play a couple of games with our tick cards. I mean, that's not going to be a thing. So I took whatever we were working on with their articulation cards, their drill practice, their lists that they came up with on their own and, um, and, and begin to focus on that. But backing up, one of the things I did with them was a game called zip, zap, zop. And I would have them all in a circle and I would join the circle too. And you, what happens is one person starts the game by pointing across the circle at someone and saying zip. And the person who receives that points at someone else and says zap. And the person receiving that points to someone else and says zop. So you get this ongoing thing of zip, zap, zop, zip, zap, zop, zip, zap, zop. And you always have to stay with the same order. So it always has to be the ip, the app, and the op. Um, and you try to do it as quickly as you can while being fully articulate. So we as actors use that game to warm up with before a show sometimes, before an improv show. Just a very fast-paced, quick-thinking game. But for articulation, of course, you modify it and you maybe you write it on a whiteboard or you, if they're more advanced, you let them just do it on their own. And at the end of every ip, app, op, they can change the initial consonant to whatever they're working on. So sip, sap, sop, rip, rap, lop, lip, lap, lop. Um, you do that for a while and then you have them change the end consonant. So it could be um, zizazaz or zil or zilzalzal, you know, whatever they need to work on, uh -huh. right? And um, again, it is challenging your thinking process at the same time as challenging your articulation, because, you know, we all recognize that 
people can do these things in drill, but when they are challenged to talk about, you know, to have to think about what they're saying and not how they're saying it, they sometimes lose how they're saying it. They lose the articulation part because they're thinking so hard about what they um want to say, which is true for all of us who don't have those problems, right? That's what we think about is what we're going to say, not how we're going to say it. And so it challenges them that way. So that was that was a, a nice beginner game for them. They loved it. And that so we warmed up with that a lot of times because they would always say, oh, we want to play that zip zap sop game. And that's what we'd warm up with. So then we'd move on to another uh, little higher level game called Next Week on Geraldo. Uh, and Geraldo was still a thing, uh, I think, at that point. Um, now, now, if I did it, I would change the name to a different talk show host, whatever. But and they, they got a huge hoot out of that. But the catchphrase is next week on Geraldo, because there would always be this tagline for the show, you know, and it, it would be something like next week, you know, large <laughs> yeah. people who can't sit on an airplane seat, you know, whatever it is. Um, but in this case, you have them, you give them a target sound, whatever their sound is going to be. And you let's say it's B and they're working on B. Uh, unlikely at fourth and fifth grade, I suppose. But, you know, let's use B as an example. And they have to come up with a, an adjective, a noun, a verb, and another noun that start with those letters. Okay. If they're going to have a problem with that, you can supply them with things to begin with. But I found with this group in particular, with the fourth and fifth graders, they came up with their own and they preferred to come up with their own fairly quickly. So then it might be, uh, bodacious Billy Goats Bite Bob <laughs> next week on Geraldo, you know, okay. so it's coming up with this little tagline thing. And um, and so then that's they work on that for a while. And so they're they're working on, again, their articulation sounds while having to think really hard about what they're going to say. And this is also really good for kids who are learning parts of sentence structure. So, you know, what is an adjective? What is a noun? What is a verb? And can you come up with the right things? And so some of my language disordered kids jumped in on this and also had a very good time with it. Can I ask you what ages were these? Those kids were fourth and fifth graders. So nine, 10, 11. But I have done that with definitely groups younger than that. I, you know, I would say probably second grade probably would be the lower end of that, but certainly all the way up through high school. I mean, that's, that's a great game for adults, you know? And so then uh, I moved from there in the articulation group to, uh, to a game called photo album where you have uh, three kids sitting together and one of them pretends to have an open photo album and they're just miming it and they are describing something that's in the photo album and you can either give them words well you can give them words that you want them to infuse into this their articulation targets and and then later they can make up their own words or they can just do it from something in their life for example maybe they open up the photo album and they describe a vacation that they took and when you're moving toward the generalization piece that's what you want to do because in life we don't sit around and talk sentences that have 50 S's in them, you know, that, or whatever the target is. Yeah. 
but so the one person has the photo album and they're describing what's in the photo album and the person next to them is periodically asking them questions about it. And that gives two people the opportunity to talk. It's also a wonderful activity for kids who aren't good or don't understand how to ask questions of others. And, and so that's the focus. But then you have this third student who is <laughs> asking the photo album person math questions. Huh. Hey, you know, you could infuse a little math in there. That's okay. You <laughs> set the level of the math. You might say, okay, we're only going to do single digit addition and subtraction, you know, and maybe if they want to make it harder and higher, they can. But the point is to be able to challenge that person's thinking so much that it would be possible for them to fall out of it. Mm -hmm. But they're going to try really hard not to. That's the point of the game. Mm -hmm. So that's how that game goes. And what I told them then, and I continue to tell people when I play this game, the point is you get distracted in life a lot. We all do. And that's why I use this game also for cognitive purposes and for social language. We get distracted out of things. And how do you come back to that? and make it happen? And how do you come back to it and still be on your articulation targets or still be on your fluency or whatever the issue is? So, so that game was the hardest one. And it is the most like normal conversation by the end, because by the end, you are doing a conversational task. One person is asking questions about your vacation or your whatever is in the photo album. And the other person is answering and having a conversation. And then I would just morph it from there to say, hey, you know what? We just had this great conversation, this in this very structured way about your vacation. Hey, person number two, let's look at your vacation. With, let's see if we can do it without doing this and just have a conversation where you stay on your articulation targets, but you're having this kind of similar conversation. Does that all make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I really enjoy doing therapy and specifically articulation therapy. I like language as well. But there's a part of articulation therapy that has always been quite important, I think. And that's been what I call solidification. And solidification is just nailing down the motor movement pattern and establishing it so that when you get into the clenches of conversation, it happens for you. Because as you say, you know, we have intent, you know, as to what we want to say and what we want to express. And then part of communication is just watching the other person. And rarely do we think about what's going on with our mouth and, and our tongue. Right. And th so there has to be that automaticness. And I would think if an individual, if a child or children can actually follow through and do and be successful with the tasks that you're asking them to do, that would be a really good indicator to you that that motoric piece has fallen into line. Exactly. And if it hasn't, then maybe I don't know if you've ever audio taped it or videoed, you know, the activity so that you could play it back and say, hey, how did you do? What do you think? You know, what part do I need to work on some more? But I would think that would be a really nice indicator. Right. And also where they can make that discovery. Absolutely. And uh, kind of, you know, decide what we need to do to, to rectify that. So mm -hmm. I love all that. That is just really helpful. And and, you know, it goes beyond just playing the, the board games, which, you know, I'm certainly not opposed to, but this is activity and it really requires that cognitive piece. And I think that's really important. 
Right. And when we talk about evidence-based practice of one's own practice, uh, with these particular boys, um, two of the four of them graduated from speech therapy at the end of that year. Um, before they went off to middle school, I was super happy about that because I hate to see kids going off to middle school still having those issues. Um, but also, and I'm not saying that was due specifically to, you know, these exact activities, but I think I definitely think it helped them. And the other thing that I noticed, one of the best things that happened with those boys is that with that game Zip Zap Zop that I was describing, two of them came to me and said, you know how you're always saying that we we can't just work the sounds at the beginning of the word and the end of the word, but we also have to have it in the middle two. Well, that zip zap zap game doesn't really do that. So we made it, we changed the rules a little bit. So now we're making it into zippity zappity zoppity so that there's another syllable on the end. And I was like, whoa, dude, you just came up with that on your own. And, um, I was so impressed and they came up with other ways to, to change it a little bit over time too. And you know, that to me, that was them getting a handle on, what they needed to do and, and, and making it up for themselves. So, yeah. Yes. Very creative. And obviously they wanted to stay within that game, but they also had a sense that they needed to practice some other S's or R's or L's or THs in other positions of words. And they realized that and they did something about it. Right. Good for them. Well, would you please share with us the information you have on your evidence base? You had some resources for us. Right. So uh, a fair amount of it is on fluency. And there are several articles. And as I said, people can come to my site for exact references. But there, I'll, I'll tell you that there's well, there was a poster session, an ASHA poster session in 2011 called Do Theater Experiences Increase Social Skills for Students with Autism? And there was a follow-up full research article on that. And I have to look at the exact, oh yes, um, use of theater to develop social and communication behaviors for students with autism spectrum disorders. And they're both done by um, reading her name is R-E-A-D-I-N-G, reading et al. And that last one was in uh, 2015. And so they looked at, um, you know, the use of theater in specific. I don't, you know, it's hard to find things that are exactly improv. You see a little bit more of that within some populations, but theater overall uh, looking at, and um, the, what that latter article really talked about is that they felt that they achieved higher levels of language and conversational use amongst their groups um, on the rating of social behaviors. And they felt like they had very good documentation there. And then on fluency, there is an article. Oh, yes, it was um, fluency through the use of readers theater. And it was called use of drama therapy in rehabilitation of stuttering. And about seven, they had a huge population that they studied. And a number of them were adults, but 70%, I think it was 40% were elementary school and 30% were high school aged. And they found that they improved in both verbal and nonverbal communication and also in their ability to increase their ability to handle anxiety during high stress communication situations after the use of theater. So that was, I, I found that very fascinating. I do have some other things that are, let's see, I have one, oh, um, there was a really good one on uh, using drama to build literacy. That's by McMaster. That's an older article, 1998. 
and they talked about the ways that creative dramatics can assist in literacy in terms of uh, vocabulary, decoding, discourse, and metacognition. And they, they had some pretty good results there that they felt like using drama was a really good way to go. Those references can be found comedysports.com mm-hmm. and that's sports with a Z, S-P-O-R-T-Z.com. Sounds good to me. I absolutely love it. When I was in the schools the last few years, well, even before that, I did a lot on Raiders Theater and oh my gosh, I just saw so much improvement and the kids love it. I mean, anything that has to do with plays and theater and, you know, I just, I think kids are so thrilled with doing something that's just not out of a textbook. Right. I know. And they're so natural at it for the most part, until they get into like somewhere in middle school. Um, it's actually very easy. Well, Ruth, this has been amazingly helpful. And I love this fun, broad take on using drama and theater and improvisation for all of our adults and our children, that you can apply it and modify it to fit their needs. And it makes total sense to me. And I am thrilled that you are here. And thank you so much for all of your good information. And will you come back and do another one? Because I know that we need to do more on language and, and on social interaction and so on. Will you come back and do another one? I would be pleased to do that. That would be great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Char. Oh, you are very, very welcome. And I just appreciate you thank so you. much. Thank you, Ruth. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charboshart.com and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well and God bless.